the various things that Israel would have associated with the coming of the end begin to happen as soon as Jesus dies. And when Jesus rises, then you have further signs that Jesus is overturning the natural order of things. Just the fact of resurrection is a pretty good sign that you're overturning the natural order of things. Because the natural order of things that dead people stay put when you put them in tombs, but Jesus won't stay put. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 134 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We trust that you all are doing well as we come to the end of this Lenten season. And in this episode, Peter Lightheart is going to discuss the text for Easter Sunday, 2018, this coming Sunday. If you're interested in looking at the lectionary that we use for these discussions, there is a link in the show notes to a PDF that you can download. We really hope that you're sharpened and edified by these observations on these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. And uh, this week we're discussing the readings for the lectionary for Easter Sunday, which is coming up on the 1st of April. Uh, We have two alternative readings. I'll just discuss one set, uh, which will be the sunrise readings. Uh, But the ones for that sunrise service that are scheduled for that are Exodus 15, verses 1 through 11, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, and then John 20, verses 1 through 18. The alternative texts that I have on the lectionary list are Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, part of the passage about the Lord establishing a feast on the mountain. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, of course, Paul's uh, lengthy discussion of the resurrection of Jesus and our participation in that resurrection. And then Mark 16, the uh, beginning of Mark 16, which records the... um, the uh, resurrection account in Mark and the astonishment of the disciples. And if you believe in the short ending of Mark, it ends with astonishment uh, without explanation. Uh, but th- those are not the texts I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the first set, uh, which um, are about uh, are in Exodus, 1 Corinthians, and John. I just want to say a couple of things first about uh, uh, resurrection and the centrality of resurrection in our understanding of salvation. Uh, There's a tendency among evangelical Christians and has been for a couple of centuries uh, to place a kind of emphasis on the cross that uh, uh, puts the resurrection kind of in the shadows. Uh, Everything is accomplished on the cross. When Jesus says it's uh, it's finished, that means everything is done. Uh, And it's uh, sometimes preached as if uh, Jesus' death on the cross by itself, without a resurrection, without an ascension, uh, would be uh, would secure our salvation. Uh, that's that's not the way that um, uh, Paul and the uh, Paul preaches about the resurrection. Pa- Paul preaches about the gospel in his letters. It's not the way the apostles preach about the gospel in the Book of Acts. Um, it's not the way that the gospel narratives end. They all end with some account of resurrection. The death of Jesus is uh, a a central moment in that account. It's a central part of Jesus' act of sacrifice, but it's not the completion of that act of sacrifice. 
if you look back at Old Testament sacrifices, you see, realize that there's a sequence to those sacrifices. The death of the animal uh, that's a substitute for the worshiper is a moment, one stage in that progression. But the climax is for the animal to be transformed into smoke and to be ascended into, the, into God's presence. And Jesus' sacrifice follows that whole sequence. It's not just a matter of him suffering for us, though he does do that. That's absolutely central, and we're not saved unless he does that. But on the other hand, if he just stays dead and he isn't transfigured into spirit and ascend to the Father to take his throne, then we're still in our sins. Uh, if there is no resurrection, Paul says, we're still in our sins. We have no hope. Uh, a dead Christ, as uh, Richard Gaffin used to say at Westminster Seminary, a dead Christ is not a saving Christ. Unless Jesus rises from the dead, we, we're still in our sins. Uh, and Paul, Paul also um, makes that point in a somewhat different way at the end of Romans 4, uh, one of the main uh, chapters on justification in the, gospel, in the letter to the Romans, where he ends it by saying that uh, Jesus was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our justification. So the link is between uh, the uh, death of Jesus, if you, want to, if you want to sort it out, the death of Jesus is uh, the basis for our forgiveness and cleansing from sin, but our justification is uh, grounded in and founded on the resurrection of Jesus. Richard Gaffin, both in seminary classes and in some of his writings, Resurrection and Redemption particularly, emphasizes that the reason why the resurrection is our justification is because it's Jesus' own justification. Jesus is vindicated by his resurrection. The resurrection is the Father's enacted verdict that pronounces Jesus the righteous one, that Jesus is not as the uh, as the Jews and Romans both treated him. He's not the condemned one. He's not the guilty one, but rather he's the righteous one. And the Father not only declares that, but he also uh, enacts that verdict by raising Jesus from the dead. And our justification comes by sharing in that verdict that the Father pronounces over Jesus, that is, by sharing in his resurrection. It's important that we keep that, that we don't lose either side of that. We don't want to say that the resurrection is the only important thing in the substitutionary death of Jesus is unimportant. But we also don't want to stop the uh, stop our understanding of uh, the, uh, the atonement with the death of Jesus. That's, uh, that's an essential moment of a sequence of actions that secures our redemption. Uh, the readings for um, Easter that I'm looking at this week, uh, as I said, are Exodus 15, 1 Corinthians 5, and then John 20. Exodus 15 is uh, the first 11 verses. It's part of the Song of Moses that Israel sang after they had crossed over the Red Sea. They've come out of Egypt. They've been rescued from Pharaoh, uh, and they've also been rescued from the sea. You remember the scene that they're stuck between Pharaoh, who's chasing them, and the waters in front of them. And the Lord makes a way of escape for them through the waters. And that, uh, that passage through the sea is their rescue from death. It's a passage from death by Pharaoh or death by sea. Uh, and the Lord uh, opens up a way for them to be saved and uh, also drowns Pharaoh and his armies in, in the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, that rightly is used as a, uh, a reading for Easter Sunday, a resurrection passage. Uh, the whole Exodus story is a story of the Lord coming to Israel in slavery and liberating them. It's also coming to Israel in a kind of death and bringing them to new life. Uh, 
and that's particularly the case at the at the waters of the Red Sea. Um, the New Testament tells us, Paul tells us, that this passage through the Red Sea is a baptism. And insofar as it's a baptism, it's a baptismal resurrection uh, as Israel goes uh, through the waters into the new life of a covenant with, with Yahweh. Um, Paul says that that's a type of the, resur- uh, the, type of the baptism that we uh, experience as we uh, pass from death into life. Uh, and are joined to Christ as the people of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Um, and it also, the, the, the corporate dimension of the resurrection is uh, part of what this passage captures. It's a, you know, the sacramental aspect of our participation in resurrection, also the corporate. It's Israel as a whole that passes through, uh, passes through the waters and uh, out into the new life towards Sinai where they're going to enter into covenant. Um, this is a celebration, the Exodus 15 is a celebration of Yahweh's triumph. Uh, he's exalted as a warrior. Uh, he's a warrior. Uh, his, uh, he's one who triumphs over uh, Pharaoh's horses and chariots. He makes them sink into the uh, waters like a stone. Um, and that's the part of the, part of the resurrection uh, story of Easter is Jesus as the great hero of our redemption who delivers us from Satan, from our own sin, from our guilt. He delivers us from death by combating death, by going into death itself, by going into the grave and triumphing over the grave. And uh, so uh, Exodus 15 is an an appropriate song uh, to uh, read and to sing on Easter as a uh, celebration of Jesus as the great warrior who doesn't just triumph over Pharaoh, but triumphs over our greatest enemy, uh, which is death itself. The First Corinthians five passage is an interesting reading for uh, Easter. It uh, makes uh, an allusion, sort of, to um, the resurrection of Jesus, but the uh, the specific passage that uh, the specific part of the chapter that's uh, quoted for the reading is uh, uh, talking about Jesus' sacrifice. Uh, this is uh, breaking into the middle of verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, 6b. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. A chapter begins uh, with... And Paul rebuking the Corinthians uh, for tolerating a man among them who has taken his father's wife, uh, a, a, a kind of incest that uh, in the, under the law was a capital crime. Certain kinds of incest are not capital crimes, but cross-generational incest, whether with a, a parent or um, with an uh, aunt or uncle or with a, uh, a, a daughter or son, that kind of incest is punished with death. And Paul alludes to that at the end of the chapter. He quotes from Deuteronomy uh, the phrase, remove the wicked man from among yourselves or purge the wicked man from among you. And that's a phrase that's used in Deuteronomy for the, for the death penalty. So when Paul talks about leaven, he's talking about that, I think. He's talking about the influence of this uh, wicked man and his immorality within the church. That's the little leaven that's going to leaven the whole lump of dough. Leaven is a symbol of good and bad influence. The kingdom is leaven. Uh, the spirit is leaven that goes into a lump of dough and permeates the whole 
and wickedness can be a leaven that goes into a, a, the body of the church and permeates. And it looks, it seems to be that the, the particular leaven that Paul is describing here is a toleration for this kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among uh, Gentiles, among pagans, Paul says. Uh, and uh, if that kind of sexual immorality is tolerated, then it becomes a leaven that will fill the whole church. Um, and Paul gives an exhortation, verse 7, to clear out the old leaven, but he, he bases that exhortation on the accomplishment of uh, a new Passover, on Christ as the Passover who's been sacrificed for us. And he's picking up on the sequence of festivals in the Old Covenant. Uh, the Passover festival was followed by a week of unleavened bread. The Passover itself involved a purging of unleavened, uh, purging of leaven rather, uh, from the house. Uh, the old influences and the old the spread of any old influence would be cut off, and there would be new leaven that would be uh, uh, beginning to grow and beginning to permeate. So the Passover was the annual cutoff of the old leaven of Egypt and the beginning of a new leaven of the kingdom, as it were. Uh, Paul's picking up on that Old Testament sequence. Christ is a Passover. He's been sacrificed. And so we celebrate the feast. The, the logical uh, inference is that that's the feast of unleavened bread that he's talking about. We're put into a state of perpetual, un, uh, a perpetual feast of unleavened bread because the final Passover has been sacrificed. And so we're in a state where we're, we're in a situation where we're continuously purging out the old leaven, uh, continuously keeping a feast uh, that is uh, uh, purging out the leaven of uh, immorality, the leaven of toleration of immorality, uh, the leaven of malice and wickedness, uh, and instead uh, is a feast celebrating with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, that uh, the passage doesn't make any direct uh, reference to the resurrection, and yet this is the passage that's been assigned uh, for uh, Easter Sunday for the sunrise service. And I think that the logic behind that is to uh, think in terms, of, again, of the sequence of feasts as a type of the sequence of Jesus' work and the effect of his work in the church. Jesus sacrifices himself as our Passover. That involves both his death and his resurrection, as I've already mentioned. But his, his death also puts us in a new uh, into this new situation. Uh, it puts us into the Feast of Unleavened Bread where we're in a continuous process, a continuous process of purging out the old and uh, pursuing the new and celebrating the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Um, Paul goes on to talk about the associations that we have with uh, brothers who are immoral, covetous, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, swindlers, and to avoid contact with such a people, such people. Not that we avoid contact with wicked people who are outside the church, but those who are inside the church are not living in uh, uh, in obedience to Jesus should be purged away. They're part of the old leaven that should be purged. And part of the working of resurrection life in the church is this constant purgation of the old leaven and this constant pursuit and this constant celebration of a, a new feast of unleavened bread. The uh, gospel readings for, sun, for Easter Sunday are taken from John, John's account of the, uh, of the first Easter uh, a series of events that are recorded in John 20 that t all take place on uh, the uh, on the uh, on the first Easter, the day of the resurrection, which John designates uh, as the first day of the week. In a couple of instances, 
uh, in verse 1 of chapter 20, and again in verse 19, he says, the evening of that day, the first of the week, and then he, uh, there's a, a, a further week, uh, uh, verse 26, he talks about after eight days, um, there's another uh, sequence that takes us beyond a full week into the day after a full week. Uh, and that's important for John's understanding of what the resurrection is about. Um, it's John, we know from the first verse of John that he's telling us a new creation story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and this Word that is toward God and is God is the creative Word that makes everything. And that's the Word that's become flesh. And the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation, and part of the way John symbolizes that is by, uh, with this temporal uh, symbol of the day after the Sabbath, the first day of a new week. God created the world in seven days. Uh, the first day, the eighth day, the first day of the second, the eighth day, I should say, that was the first day of a second week. It's the first day of the week of Adam, first full week of Adam's life. Uh, Jesus comes as the last Adam to bring the old creation to an end, uh, and he uh, passes uh, a Sabbath and then rises again on the on the first day of the week. That eighth day symbol becomes a an image of new creation and resurrection in the early church. It's a fairly fairly common symbol uh, of uh, resurrection. And it's something that's rooted back in the Old Testament system. The Levitical system has a lot of eighth-day rites. Circumcision is done on the eighth day. Uh, you have certain kinds of purity rites that uh, involve a week of waiting and then an eighth-day entry into purity. The priests have a week of ordination and then on the eighth day they enter into their ministry so there's a there's a an eighth day pattern that's already worked into uh, Israel's system but that comes to fulfillment in uh, Christ's Christ's resurrection so on this first day after the Sabbath this beginning of an uh, of a new creation uh, Jesus has a number of encounters with people and you have a progressively nearer encounter progressively more uh, clear idea of what has happened and who uh, who Jesus is following his resurrection. There, there are three episodes, or three plus one, you could say. The first one is uh, Peter and John coming to the tomb, seeing an empty tomb, uh, but going away without really understanding what has happened, not, not talking to anyone. Jesus makes no appearance initially. The resurrection is, first of all, an absence. Uh, that's a... That's a, um, a point worth pausing over because of the... Uh, the common uh, modernist trope, the liberal trope, that uh, you know, resurrection doesn't mean that there's an empty tomb. We're not worried about bodies in tombs. We're worried about the experience of resurrection. Uh, well, John was worried about bodies in tombs, and he tells us that the tomb is empty, and that's the first sign of resurrection, that Jesus uh, is no longer in the tomb. Uh, the second episode is, involves Jesus and Mary, and this time Jesus does appear to Mary, uh, and speaks to her, and she acknowledges him as a teacher in 20 verse 16. Um, later on, that same day, in the evening of the first day of the week, Jesus appears to the disciples, and they all confess that Jesus, uh, the Lord has, that we have seen the Lord. They, uh, they uh, eventually tell Thomas that in verse 25. Uh, but Thomas is absent in that first encounter on Easter evening, and so we have the account of Thomas that we'll look at next week. Uh, that's part of our reading for that week. Uh, but you have this series of episodes, uh, first an empty tomb, then an encounter with Mary in the garden, 
then an encounter with the disciples minus Thomas, and then Thomas is brought in. You can see that as a fourth episode, but I suspect that that's supposed to be part of what's happening with the disciples. Uh, there, there's a kind of two-stage recognition of Jesus uh, with, the, with the disciples. So the uh, first day of the week, day after the, day after the Sabbath, new creation. Uh, and part of what's happening in this, as in other accounts of the resurrection, is that the, the world is being turned inside out. Uh, and it's being turned upside down. Jesus is uh, d- uh, Jesus is beginning to remake the world. He does that already on the cross. As soon as he dies, uh, uh, there's an earthquake. The earth shakes. Um, the veil of the temple is torn. People pop up out of their graves and are seen in Jerusalem. So um, uh, the, the various things that Israel would have associated with the coming of the end begin to happen as soon as Jesus dies. And when Jesus rises, then you have further signs that Jesus is overturning the the, uh, the natural order of things. Just the fact of resurrection is a pretty good sign that you're overturning the natural order of things. Because the natural order of things that dead people stay put when you put them in tombs, but Jesus won't stay put. Um, but in the the first episode in chapter in John chapter twenty, we have a pretty striking uh, illustration of this um, this overturning and this inverting of of the world uh, that Jesus accomplishes by his death and resurrection. You have the two disciples come, Peter and John. Uh, John gets there first and stands aside, and Peter goes into the into the tomb first. Uh, they don't see anybody. They don't see the angels that Mary will later see. What they see are linen wrappings uh, and uh, uh, the uh, uh, face cloth that was on Jesus' head. Uh, rolled up by itself in another place. So they go in and see an empty tomb. There's no body there. There's no Jesus. Uh, but they see these uh, cl- this clothing that Jesus had been wrapped in as at, at his death. And it's all neatly folded. And uh, it's not as if uh, it had been ripped off, but it had been, you know, he carefully removed it and neatly uh, placed it in the tomb. Well, that's an odd thing to see. And what? Uh, why, would, why would that be the first indication of resurrection? An, ab- an absence in a tomb, that by itself is a resurrection. Why this emphasis on the clothing? Um, I think that that, that's, that has to do with the, uh, the rites of the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, a high priest would strip off his uh, garments of glory and beauty. He would go down to a, uh, a simple linen tunic, uh, and he would enter into, the, enter into the most holy place wearing just his uh, uh, a, linen, uh, a linen effort, not his full regalia uh, and he would do the, all the rites of the day of atonement uh, in that uh, in that simpler less glorious clothing at the end of the day he takes that off and he puts his, his robes of glory and beauty back on uh, he's reclothed uh, as priest part of what's happening at the day of atonement is the priest is being the whole temple system is being renewed but the priest is also being renewed in his priestly status uh, but if you if you read Leviticus 16, it sounds as if uh, the priest strips down inside the tabernacle uh, and leaves his clothes there, and then puts his uh, his normal priestly clothes back on. Um, the fact that we have clothing here inside the tomb suggests that this is this is a, a, a day of atonement uh, scene, which means that the tomb has become uh, a a holy place. It's become a, an equivalent of the sanctuary. I think we have another indication of that when Mary stoops down and looks inside the tomb. 
uh, she sees two angels sitting on the slab where Jesus had been laid, one on the uh, one on one side and one of, one at the head and one at the feet. That's in John twenty twelve. So she looks in and she sees this slab of stone where Jesus had laid and two angels on the side. That's a that's an Ark of the Covenant image, but it's in a tomb. Uh, it's hard to imagine a more intensely impure setting than a tomb. Tombs are full of dead people, uh, and uh, dead bodies are some of the most virulent communicators communicators of uncleanness that you have in the Old Covenant order. If you, if you uh, are in the presence of a dead body, in the room with a dead body, you become unclean. You don't even have to touch it. You have to be in the same, uh, in the same space with the dead body, and you're unclean. But now this, uh, the, the tomb has become a place of, uh, that's, it's being described in terms that suggest the most holy place. The tomb has become the source of holiness and life rather than being uh, the place of death. It's become the source of purity and renewal rather than being the most, one of the most intensely impure places. Uh, that's the, that's the part of the inversion that Jesus is accomplishing here. It's an inversion that, Early Christians picked up pretty quickly, uh, sometimes to the uh, exasperation of the church fathers. So they were um, uh, Augustine is uh, sometimes expresses worry about the some of the superstitions that might grow around um, uh, cemetery-based celebrations of the Eucharist. Uh, Augustine's writing in the fourth and fifth centuries, so that's quite a bit after the resurrection. But uh, there, there's evidence earlier than that that uh, cemeteries, catacombs, become places of worship. Uh, for ancient Jews, that would have been unthinkable. Uh, you don't want the you don't want to be around uh, the dead when you're uh, when you're having a feast in the presence of the Lord. But uh, Jesus has reversed all that, and He's become Lord of the dead. He's made death a source of life rather than an end of life. He's made death a source of uh, purity and holiness, rather than uh, a source of uh, contamination. Uh, the uh, I'll say a few words about the encounter with Mary, uh, and then close for this episode. Uh, this is a, uh, a has a number of different a number of uh, Old Testament sources behind it. Um, the obvious one, of course, is Jesus uh, uh, as as the new Adam, Mary as a representative of Eve. Uh, this is the climax within the gospel. This is the climax of a bridal theme that begins very early in John's gospel. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. Jesus goes to a wedding feast. That's his first sign at the wedding at Cana. Uh, he encounters a woman at the well. Uh, he encounters other women along the way. Now, at the near the near the end of the gospel, he encounters Mary in the garden. Uh, all of these women that Jesus encounters and interacts with. Uh, signify the bride, but are not yet the bride. Um, and it, in order to see the co- completion of that bridal theme, you have to go to uh, volume two of John's work, that is the book of Revelation, and you finally have the the uh, the fullness of the bride that's revealed at the end of Revelation. But Mary is a type of that bride. She's a she's a type of the uh, the new Eve that is the church. And so Jesus' encounter with her in the in the uh, in the garden when she mistakes him for the gardener. Uh, is a sign of a restored Eden. He's the new Adam. The church is the new Eve. Mary symbolizes the church, and you have a you have a new creation motif again. Uh, the other more subtle background is in the Song of Songs. Uh, the fact that you have the uh, 
Adam and Eve scene, an identical kind of marriage scene uh, with a man and a woman in a garden, uh, that itself gives us uh, links us to the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is uh, a love song between two lovers. Uh, they are often in uh, garden settings, and um, at the center of the book, at the end of chapter four and the beginning of chapter five, you have uh, they enter into a garden and they. Uh, the bride herself is like a garden that uh, the bridegroom is enjoying and they are feasting together in a love feast. Uh, and again, you have this bridal theme, Mary signifying the bride that is the church uh, in communion with Jesus in this new world that he's brought in by his resurrection. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.